Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Cinema on Tap, your weekly movie podcast with a refreshing selection of movie reviews and industry topics on tap for discussion. As always, I am Scott Lenz, here with my co-host and drinking buddy, Christian Ubius. Wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Refreshing to (laughs) see. So refreshing and tasty. Oh, Christian, it's 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 spilling up. Gotta you gotta get the foam. That's that sound design the listeners are here for. (laughs) Are you ready for our first fun fact? And they're gonna get more complicated as the weeks go on. But are you ready for the first fun fact about beer? You haven't even Oh my gosh, I forgot you're doing fun facts about beer. Alright, Christian. Tell me your first fun fact about beer. Guess what? The number one, the number one beer sold in the U.S. is the number one beer. Number sold one in the most US. popular beer in the U.S. Coors Light. No. Budweiser. No. This one actually unseated a beer that had been on top for twenty years. Bud Light. Bud Light was on top for twenty years. Got dethroned this year. By Michelob Ultra. By Modelo Especial. By Modelo Especial. All right. Let's go Modelo. And in I I still don't even understand because Bud Light, you know why Bud Light's number one or was number one? Tell me why. Colleges. Yes. <laughs> Nothing like a nice 30 rack of Bud Light to really help your weekend go well. You know, I don't quite know why. I am not in the, the economics of beer. I am in the, the business of movie podcasting, folks. <laughs> How's the business going? You know, Christian, not a lot of business as for now, but plenty of podcasting as we are cracking into a brand new keg here in the month of November in honor of Disney 100 and the release of their new film, Wish, we will be looking at the history of Disney animation, talking through three of their different eras, reviewing two films from each, and generally... Going on a massive nostalgic trip through our childhoods, <laughs> revisiting all of these Disney movies. Before we get to Disney, Christian, because mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about that, I want to get our taster for the week out of the way. As folks know, with our episodes for the last few months, we've been introducing some new topics normally at the top of the show just to talk about the industry or big news or even just movies that we're seeing that are unrelated to the month-long topic that we're looking at. And we got to partake in a couple of very cool screenings over the weekend as part of AFI Fest here in Los Angeles. So it's the closest Los Angeles has to a film festival. Yes. I mean, there are some, like Beyond Fest, which we participated yeah. in, which is less of a fall festival feeling. AFI Fest is, is showing new movies. It's bringing in big industry in, names. It's in Hollywood, on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes. It, it's like we saw the red carpet rolled out. We didn't walk it, but we were right in front of the red carpet. We did not walk it. This is true, but but very few people walked it. Very few people did, and of course, with the ongoing SAG after strike, I'm so sad. Christian is sad. I am so sad. I'm I'm not sure if any big name actors would have attended these screenings. A few of the movies that were showing at the festival were not debuting. They Mr. had shown at other festivals. Would have been there. Bradley Cooper most likely would have been there at the screening of Maestro, which is one of the two movies that we got to see. The other was The Bike Riders, which is Jeff Nichols' new film, which unfortunately was delayed recently. It was delayed into 2024. We have seen it, and almost no one else in America has seen that movie. If you didn't see it at a film festival, you're not going to see it for a while. Um, also, 
do not be fooled. Austin Butler is not in much of that movie. <laughs> yeah, let's let's start with the bike ride. Okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. No, I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I stepped on anything. What were you gonna say before? Like, how were you gonna intro the movies? No, I, you, that's totally fine to talk Austin Butler because I want to talk Austin Butler. But yes, we did see the bike riders on yes. Friday. Jeff Nichols is the writer director there. People may know him. He has been more on the indie scene, but he's had some successes. He made movies like Take Shelter with Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain, made Loving, which got Ruth Negga an Oscar nomination a few years ago. We, I mean, we saw it. He gave a Q&A. We talked yeah. with him yes. also. He was there. We got to shake his hand. Pretty cool. Yeah. And if people are not aware of The Bike Riders, it is a loose adaptation of the book of photography of the same name, where Nichols has created a world of bikers in a Chicago-based motorcycle club called the Vandals. Tom Hardy is the founder of the club. Jody Comer plays a woman who is sort of brought into the world of the biker gang when she falls in love with Austin Butler's character. And it traces the history of the club over the course of the, I guess the 60s is when most of the action is taking place, into the 70s as they undergo a change and we're following primarily these three characters. So, Christian, I'm curious your take on the bike riders. As you said, like the very first thing that you said is that Austin Butler is not really a feature of the in the feature star in the movie. So, what if, are some of your expanded thoughts now that you've had a few days to think about it? Well, if there is a lead, it's Tom Hardy and Jodie Comer. If there are lead, like I thought, you know, Tom Hardy is maybe the supporting actor in this. No, he is. He is up there. He is propelling the story forward. And, I mean, what, we need to give thoughts without spoiling this movie, but mainly just this movie looks gorgeous, has the weirdest accents, and... What? (laughs) They're not weird accents. There's thick Chicago accents. By people, and it, it... Okay, it doesn't affect your viewing negatively. What I'm saying is... You go in there knowing that both Tom Hardy and Jodie Comer are British and that these are the accents that they are choosing. Yes. And that is funny. It's not... No, no, no. These accents are, like, pretty good. Jodie Comer apparently was listening to recorded audio because there's interviews from this book of uh, photographs and she was listening to the audio from the interviews of this character that... With that, this woman that inspired her character, and she's trying to nail the Chicago accent. And apparently, according to Jeff Nichols, she basically showed up with it fully formed. So Tom Hardy also showed up with his accent. <laughs> yes, Tom Hardy. If you've seen the trailer for the Bike Riders, you know he is doing one of his very classic weird Tom Hardy voices, and he apparently rolled onto set doing that. And Jeff Nichols had to really think about if he wanted him to keep it or not, and he let him do it, obviously. But no. um... I was trying to think of what movie I can compare this to. It's a little bit in the vein of Minding the Gap, where these... Okay, wait. I mean, I'm I'm surprised because Minding the Gap is a documentary about skaters growing up in Chicago, so... It's people who are choosing to ride bikes at this bike riders. So they're people who are choosing to ride motorcycles as a way of processing emotions and to trying to figure out how to deal with their everyday lives. I, I made this joke to you that I, <coughs> I wanted a movie that showcased a lot of toxic masculinity. There's a lot of that in this movie. There's like, yes, there's an excessive amount of talk. I think I'm good till 2031. That. 
I would say there's that much masculinity. <laughs> I've seen worse. No, 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 but it's, it, and that's why I'm comparing it to Mighty in the Gap, where it's people who are choosing to ride a skateboard, and like them riding a skateboard is not the primary focus of the movie. It's the fact that that is what they have turned to because they are coming all from similar upbringings within this Midwest town, and that it is showcased in the way in which they talk to each other, but they share this common interest. Yeah, I, I would still make a distinction just because Mind in the Gap is a documentary. <laughs> and it's, but it's also like it's looking at these three guys and yes. the different hardships and struggles that they went through growing up that are affecting them now in their adulthood and how some of them are able to heal through it, some of them are still or hounded not. by it yeah. and are not. Whereas The Bike Riders is, is more of almost, it has a sort of classical feel to it in its storytelling and in its structure. The primary framing device is Mike Feist playing a character who is essentially the interviewer, the, per- and the photographer, the person who would make this book. And we're following his interviews really with Jodie Comer's Kathy. And she's talking about the history of this gang at two different times, in the mid-60s and then in the early 70s. And it, what is cool about it is, although Austin Butler's character is not really featured heavily as heavily in the narrative as I was expecting, considering he is coming off of Elvis and he's about to be in the Dune sequel... He becomes the most important character in the movie because Kathy, as his wife, and Hardy, as the motorcycle club like leader, his best friend, and it's almost more like a almost like a father son dynamic. Like yeah. he sort of he tries to groom Butler to take over the club for him one day, it's... and they start basically competing for his attentions and affections, and it becomes really interesting when you realize what Butler is standing in for thematically. And that's when things started to click for me. It, well, yes. But it's also... It's a movie that is asking you to seek empathy for characters who are not, you know, morally the best people. And that is something that you need to keep in mind while watching this movie. Who these people are. What is their upbringing. Why are they there. And also, we have no clue when the majority of America is going to be able to see this movie. Yeah, I did. They not give it a new release date. They have not given the new release date. Okay, as, as of yet, as of my knowledge, they definitely will want people like Austin Butler and Jodie Comer and Tom Hardy promoting this movie. So, understandable given the ongoing strike that hopefully will be resolved soon and we can get a release date for the bike riders. Because I agree, very good movie, well worth seeing, beautifully made, like beautifully this, just, shot. The, the intention and just how the movie looks is fantastic. And the last thing that I want to say about it before we move on to our second movie is that when the movie opens, it actually opens on Austin Butler's character. And there's a, a scene with him in a bar. And then another scene shortly after is when Jodie Comer meets him at a different bar. And in both of those scenes, I sort of thought to myself... Austin Butler might be the most beautiful man in the world right now, <laughs> which is something that Jeff Nichols himself later said, said in the Q&A. Q&A. He, yeah. was, he was saying that he met Austin Butler for the first time as part of the casting process for this movie and thought to himself, this guy is unbelievably handsome. <laughs> and he also Jeff said he's Nichols more attractive I, in person. He's more attractive in person somehow. So Jeff Nichols and I agree, Austin Butler is a looker and he is a great actor as well, thankfully. And so The Bike Riders, worth your time when it gets a release date. Absolutely. Now, Christian, Bradley Cooper was not there on Sunday night. But but we saw Maestro. We saw Maestro. We saw it before most people, and this movie, let's let's get a couple things out of the way. It's gorgeous. This movie is 
gorgeous to look at. Carrie Mulligan and Bradley Cooper are giving unbelievable performances. It is weirdly funny at random moments. It's got tinges of like whimsy and like magic during some of its scenes. Um, you you messaged in one of the in the group chat that we're in that um, there is a scene that you consider to be in the contender for scene of the year. Was that the chapel scene? Yeah, I, I okay. want to say it's called the Ely Cathedral. Is where okay. that concert was played, but I can look it up. It's there's there's so much to it. It's beautifully directed. Um, it's gonna hit Netflix, I believe, on December twentieth. I'm not exactly sure. I know that I'm going to see it again at the Egyptian Theater in a couple of weeks because I managed to get a free ticket for it. But, man, it's... it. Tr- I don't... I mean, I had... It was my number one most anticipated movie of the year. It definitely met my expectations and exceeded them. So it's, it's one of those where I'm happy. <laughs> it's like, I'm happy Bradley Cooper's in another movie. I'm happy Bradley Cooper directed this movie. I know that it came in here with... Um, I was looking forward to this movie more than you were just because I'm, like, in love with the man. <laughs> I I really like Bradley Cooper yeah. as an actor, and I really liked A Star is Born, and I was excited to see his second movie. So it's definitely a movie I was anticipating, although I think you were still a little bit ahead of me in that. And, yes, if people are not aware, Maestro is Bradley Cooper's um, historical biographical film about Leonard Bernstein and his wife, Felicia Montalegra. It's, it's not a... Uh... It's not a cradle-to-grave biopic. No, and, and that is, I would say, it's, it's, it's in respects, it's the best... It's a biopic. It's, yeah, it's, it's at times the best part of the movie, and at times it makes it a little bit hard to settle into. Because the way that they structure the movie, like you said, very different from the typical biopic, where a lot of times something will flash on the screen, it'll say, New York, 1954, or whatever time and place we're in. It'll settle us into where we are, maybe what event we're at. But Maestro just moves, and they go from time to place, and time and place, without a lot of hand-holding. And so if you're not intimately familiar with the life of Linda Bernstein, as I am not... You don't have to be. You don't have to be, but it might take a second to catch up. And that was my experience, especially with the early parts of the movie, while I was settling into their approach. And ultimately, it's something that pays off, because the biopic is something that we've been been making as basically as long as we've been making movies. It is the oldest form of, of movie, almost. That's not entirely true, but it feels like it sometimes. And especially in recent years, we've seen a lot of these biopics that focus on a very famous person, when they're born, go through their life and see the biggest, coolest things they did, and then maybe see them on their deathbed or shortly before they die, and then the actor who plays them wins an Oscar. And Maestro feels very different because it's so intimately focused on this marriage. They referred to it as the spine of the movie in the Q&A after the screening, and that helps put things into perspective for me. If you were to tell me that this was just a movie about a marriage, I would believe you, and about different phases of a marriage. It's the same way that people walked out of Tar and thought, oh, Lady Tar is a real person. Uh, it's I, it's giving me the same, this could be real, this could be fiction. It's just, it's 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 beautifully well made. It, it, it is amazing. I... I joked that you accept it's not a joke, it's real, that this has already found its way into my top ten list of the year. I just need to find what place it's going to find a spot there. Yeah, you know, you said it's weirdly funny at times. And I don't think it's weirdly funny, just because I think at times it is just funny. Like, yeah. and, and that's part of who London Bernstein was. This fast-talking, incredibly intelligent, and virtuosic musician 
who could talk the ear off uh, talk the ear off of a dog. You know, he's the kind of person who could chat with anyone and who, from what the movie tells us, easily fell in love and <laughs> had a lot of love to give, perhaps, shall we say. And so he is a very interesting character, and Cooper plays him in such a way where you really feel empathy and understanding for Leonard Bernstein, but you also can very easily understand his faults. It's this, it's not this portrait where we're making Leonard Bernstein out to be the greatest man, the greatest musician nope. who ever lived. We're not shying away from his faults. And by but sharing... They, they do showcase in a very specific scene. They, they don't tell... There I are mean, people telling him he is incredible. We don't see him conducting... There's one specific scene where we do see him conducting. Well, yeah, I mean, and which that's is, what we just mentioned. Like, it's, it's there's it's this famous one of the best things I have ever seen Bradley Cooper do. Yeah, it's it's a, a famous performance at the Ely Cathedral. That I mean, again, I am not very familiar with the life of Leonard Bernstein. I was not aware of this performance. Uh, maybe I'm uncultured, but experiencing it, it it is one of my scenes of the year, absolutely. And it's to the point where I will say. I know that this is a Netflix movie, and it may not come to a theater everywhere where we have listeners. If you can see it on Netflix, please do. But if you do get the opportunity to see it in a theater, there are several times where this becomes worth it, but the Ely Cathedral scene is absolutely one of the times where it is worth people, it because of the, the music. audience started clapping, and I thought people, that... People in our, our audience, audience in the, the theater, theater started clapping. And I thought it was people from the audience of the movie that were clapping until then I heard the people of the movie were clapping. Right. It's, it was this funny delay where people in our theater clapped, and then the audience in the movie started erupting into applause, and you realized, oh gosh, those people, <laughs> they jumped the gun. And honestly, worth the applause. What did you make of the, without spoiling what happens, obviously, what did you make of the ending? Like the last three, four, five minutes? Because that, for me, left me feeling a little bit odd. Uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I agree. I'm not entirely sure. Um, the nightclub scene... I don't know how I feel about that. Same. The scene right before that, when he's like a guest instructor, kind of... I, I dug it. I yep. dug it by the end of it. Yeah. The last image that we get, and that image is in black and white, and I'm not going to say what that image is, I liked. It's one of those where, and we talked about this already, I need to rewatch the movie to see how I feel about the ending. I feel similarly. So, that's Maestro. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later this year, as we inevitably get to see it again and start discussing our favorites of the year. But for both the bike riders and Maestro, very Let cool me, quickly, to see quickly. this as part of AFI Fest. Yes, Christian. Will they both get nominated for Oscars? Maestro absolutely is going to get nominated for Oscar Oscars. I mean, I mean, lead actor, lead actress. Oh, you mean Cooper and Mulligan, not yes. the bike riders and Maestro? Yes. I right now I lean yes. Okay. I, I think, I mean, as we sat in the room, Edward Berger, who's the director of All, All Quiet, Quiet on, on the Western, Western Front, Front, who he won an Oscar last year in the international feature category. All he Quiet came on the out Western to Western Front sweeped the technicals last year, and indeed it did. And he was moderating the Q and A, and he was gushing about this movie. And the the panel was filled with people. Uh, one of the Bernstein children was there. The editor, the sound mixers, the writer, co-writer, Josh Singer, the producers. The producers yeah. There was this uh, Kazuhiro who did the prosthetic makeup. Uh, yeah. makeup. Mark Bridges, the costume designer. Like All these people came out and they were talking about what a genius Bradley Cooper is. How phenomenal it was to work with him. He would Apparently he and Kazuhiro would sit down in the makeup chair at 1, 1 in the morning. Yeah. That was their call time, so the makeup could start after that, and they would be ready to go by when the crew got there early on. Like, 
Yeah, so it seems like we're about to get a massive Bradley Cooper campaign in all categories. And I think Carrie Mulligan is one of those actresses who is on a sort of Amy Adams, Glenn Close track where she's widely beloved, will consistently get nominated, but maybe will always be edged out by different performance in terms of actually getting an award. We shall see. There's a lot of excellent lead female performances already considered this year, let alone what the next two months are going to bring us. So I think they'll both get nominated for sure. We should... We should pencil in maybe an Oscars predictions of what we think is going to get nominated and why. Yeah, or where. Fun. Um, I don't know. Look forward to that in December. I look. Bradley Cooper will one day win an Oscar, even if it's an honorary Oscar. The man is incredible. Bradley I, Cooper is going to win an Oscar in for best actor in a supporting role in like twenty or twenty five years when he comes in as someone's irascible someone's irascible father. Don't say that. He's gonna be the only nomination in that movie and he's gonna win and people are gonna give him a standing ovation and he's gonna get a ton of nominations for other things and he's gonna finally win in like twenty years. <laughs> That's my prediction. No, don't say that. Alrighty Christian. Thank you for uh, for sharing in the AFI fest with me and buying yeah, my ticket to Maestro. You're a real you're a real peach. Let's now, talk about the dwarfs. Now it's time to talk dwarves, folks. <laughs> we are tapping into a new keg. We are talking through the history of Disney. And we're going to start by talking through, or I should say, what this month is going to look like. So we will be talking through some of the different eras in Disney animation. If you're not a Disney super fan, which I'm not a Disney super fan, I'm, I'm really just familiar, fans over the years have categorized Disney animation into several different eras based on time and the movies that came out. Those eras are the Golden Age, which is where we'll be starting with today. The Wartime Era, which covers the movies that came out during and shortly after World War II. The Silver Age, which covers the 50s. The Bronze Age, which covers the 70s and 80s. But we're not talking about the Bronze Age, right? We're not talking about the Bronze Age. We'll be talking about the Silver Age next week. And then we'll be talking about the Disney Renaissance, which is maybe the one era that everybody knows, which uh, goes from 89 to 99. Before going into this, it is my favorite era of Disney. It is an iconic era for a lot of reasons, and we'll get into that later this month. And then after that, we have the post-Renaissance era, a lot of the movies that I grew up going to the theaters seeing, and finally, the revival era, which is considered to have been going on since 2010. So, Christian, how familiar were you with this categorization of Disney? Was this something that I introduced to you, or had you thought about it a little bit before? Look, let's, let, let me look up the movies from the Golden Age. I wasn't familiar with the direct characterizations, but I have seen... Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have seen Pinocchio and Fantasia. I have seen Dumbo and Bambi. So I have seen every single movie that is in the Golden Age. Let's look at the Silver Age. In the Silver Age, frick, it's not, well, okay, here it is. I have seen Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, Jungle Book. I don't know if I have seen The Sword in the Stone or The Aristocats, but still, basically all of them. Let's look at Disney Renaissance. Disney Renaissance. Where the F are these movies? Where are they listed? I'm pretty sure I have seen every single movie that is in the Disney Renaissance. And these are movies that people will definitely know. It's Aladdin, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Tarzan, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Little Mermaid, Pocahontas, Hercules, Mulan, and The Rescuers Down Under. Don't forget The Rescuers Down Under. I have not seen The Rescuers Down <laughs> Under. Have I have not seen Pocahontas, believe it or not. So that's going to be homework for when we do our list at the at the end of the month. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently about how Emperor's New Groove is the movie that killed Disney's the Disney Renaissance. 
which The Emperor's New Groove is an underrated movie. That's that is a tired take at this point, but unfortunately, it yes did kill the Renaissance era. And um, as the movie is about my people, let me. A, a true classic of Peruvian cinema. Surely. Yes. I, I mean, it's it's like the closest people are going to have to knowing about Incan culture is Emperor's New Groove. And it's also a movie where people for a party are wearing sombreros and swinging maracas. And also there are alligators. Are so, you telling me I couldn't? find those things in, in the great country <laughs> you could also find them in the great country of florida indeed indeed i could yes, i'm sure you actually could probably find them more in florida than in peru <laughs> i believe you on that one so looking at the golden age those yep. first five films that you listed i yes. know that i've seen all of these movies and growing up my family watched a lot of disney movies we had a lot of vhs's and if folks Younger folks than us may not remember the pre-DVD era, which was VHS tapes. But not only were we watching these movies on VHS, Disney had a practice called the Disney Vault, where they would not sell their movies all the time. Nowadays, of course, it's and it's a practice that's ending now, but if you go into a Best Buy or if you go into a Target, you can find DVDs and Blu-rays of basically any movie you want, but... Disney used to selectively release their movies and pull movies out of the vault, and they'd be available for a short time. So it was always kind of something special to add a VHS, VHS tape to your collection, and my mom was excellent at adding VHS tapes to the collection. She was a Disney fan herself, of course, and they're great family movies. So I know that I've seen a lot of these movies, but what's interesting about the Golden Age is I feel that they might be some of the movies I watched the least as a kid. And I know that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs specifically is a movie that I sort of got scared of as a little kid and did not want to watch. Pinocchio is the movie that scared me. Yeah, and I feel like that may have happened for me with Pinocchio as well. So (laughs) I'm curious to get into each of those movies. Pinocchio is a scary movie. Yeah, there's some heavy stuff going on in Pinocchio. It'll be interesting to talk about it. The Golden Age obviously is considered the Golden Age because it is the beginning of Walt Disney's foray into feature filmmaking. The studio had produced a ton of short films up until that time many of which you can watch on Disney Plus if you're curious about that era. And Disney himself wanted to branch out into feature filmmaking, resulting in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which would be the first full-length, traditionally animated feature film. So not the very first animated film. There are a few exceptions before it, but traditionally animated, yes. And people consider this to be a failure waiting to happen, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was called Disney's Folly until it released and became the highest grossing movie of all time (laughs) until it was bested by Gone with the Wind a few years later. I think that for a while, up until very, maybe up until Endgame or maybe up until Star Wars um, Force Awakens, it was in the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time when you adjusted for inflation. Yes. Snow White, if you look at it, was made for a budget of $1.5 million, according to Wikipedia, and the box office is $418 million, which, granted, that will That's include... incredible. Yes. That will include many re-releases over the years. They Disney would put these movies back into theaters uh, throughout the ensuing years. This movie came out in 1937, so it's approaching its 90th birthday in a few years here. It's been out for a while. But, of course, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was a smash hit, and it changed the course of Disney animation. Not only was it a huge financial success, but it also garnered Walt Disney an honorary Oscar, which is actually his second. He got one for the creation of Mickey Mouse previously. But no, And 
You know what the Oscar looks like, right? It's one big one and seven the small ones. ones. <laughs> In honor of the dwarves themselves. Unfortunately, Pinocchio, the follow-up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, was not as financially successful, which is the way that the Golden Age goes for Disney. They create these very ambitious feature films. The follow-up to that is Fantasia, which is a series of musical shorts introducing classical music to children and setting it to all this wild and creative animation. But that, Dumbo and Bambi, many of which, uh, they were not huge financial successes, and that's what spurred... Uh, one of the factors that spurred a change during the wartime eras and into which Disney was not making as many feature films. They were making what were called package films, and they would return to feature filmmaking after the war. Yep. So just a couple quick thoughts about these movies mm-hmm. before we get into our review, some behind-the-scenes folks. This, there's a lot of directors who worked in these movies. They're not written and directed the traditional way, or not the traditional way, but the way that we understand it now. They had a supervising director mm-hmm. and sequence directors on these uh, various various pieces of the movie so one person over it bringing it all together that person for snow white and the seven dwarves is david hand it's written by a big room of writers and Say their names: ted sears richard creedon otto englander dick rickard earl hurd merrill damaris dorothy and blank websmith <laughs> thank you christian yes the the disney writers room bringing these movies to life um, we also had for Pinocchio, I'm tracking down the supervising director. That would be Hamilton Lusky and Ben Sharpstein. Ben Sharpstein and Hamilton... Wait, did Hamilton... No, but Ben Sharpstein worked as one of the sequence directors for, for Snow White. Yes, before he was given elevated to the supervising status yes. with Hamilton Lusky. And they would make more movies together at Disney as well. So, Christian, it's time to jump into our reviews of these movies. Yes. And obviously... These two are very, very famous movies. The first traditionally animated feature film, the first American animated film, maybe I should have fact-checked that, but hey, why not? Um, no. Who, you, I think probably not. Three <laughs> Little Pigs? Well, I'm talking feature. I thought Three Little, three little Pigs, pigs is not a feature. No, it's not a feature line. Oh, did not know that. But regardless, these two are also considered, according to AFI, speaking of the good folks at the American Film Institute, when they did a host of lists a few years ago and they asked for the greatest animated films, Snow White was number one and Pinocchio was number two. Okay. In fact, nine out of the ten of those movies are Disney. Can you guess the one that's not? I'm looking at the list. Okay. It's Shrek. It's for those, Shrek. For those who are curious. So, Christian, my question to Toy you... Toy Story was not Disney when it started. But, yeah, Pixar... I mean, Disney and Pixar were closely from the beginning. But, sure. regardless. Yeah. Christian, I'm not expecting you to agree and say that you think Snow White and Pinocchio are the number one and number two greatest animated films of all time. But what I am going to ask you, and to kick off our discussion, is how do you feel about the quote-unquote greatness of these two films? And are they still worthy of consideration for their greatness, or should they just be looked back at as influential but dated classics? I okay okay stories can or cannot be dated but there are stories that I love that extend back to the 1920s 30s 40s there are stories that I enjoy that have been written in the 1800s and it's it's not that um that being said I I I do think there needs to be a place and and maybe we should separate most significant from greatest because when you're going into greatest in my mind I think of best and when I'm looking at animated movies, I am looking at the combination of the animation as well as the story that it is trying to tell. Look, both these movies are gorgeously animated. Yes. They are beautifully 
beautifully animated storyboarded sequenced um looks way better than many animated movies that come out now yeah that, i mean these movies are uh, now that the terminology is more like 2D animation versus 3D animation. I mean, 2D is harder because you need to hand draw every frame and decide how many frames are going to go into a second of a movie. Yes. That's why these movies are 90 minutes long. It's because if they were, or like, honestly, it's probably less than, a little bit less than 90 minutes because if you animate longer, it's more, it's way more that you need to draw and put in there. Um, but I, let's, let's go a couple ways without me revealing full, full thoughts yet. I lean Pinocchio versus Snow White. Okay. What about you? I probably lean that way as well. Yes. Not not by a wide margin. I think I think I'll share my thoughts. I think both of these are fantastic and well deserving of their status as classics, as as great films, capital G, capital F. I don't know if they're among my favorite Disney films, but I I can say they have aged beautifully. Uh, the animation here, especially. So, Snow White. That's my thought. Meanders slightly. Snow Let White me, meanders significantly. There is it, <laughs> okay. very little narrative content in that but, movie. And here's 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 also a thing with Snow White though. It's meandering so that it can show off its animation. Hundred percent. That was that was my exact takeaway. Pinocchio doesn't meander that much, and. Pinocchio, as it goes off, like when you think Pinocchio is going off on a side tangent, no, that's actually where the narrative is taking you to go into this overall lesson of little kids not succumbing to temptation and maturing. Pinocchio is 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 one of the weirdest weirdest movies to show kids trying to tell them to be good and obey their parents. Yeah, what's what's fun about revisiting these movies now is and, know, and knowing about different types of stories. You know that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is a fairy tale, and that Pinocchio is a morality tale. Yep. And Snow White is a fanciful story about a princess who has to run away from the evil wit, evil queen and go into the woods, hang out with some forest creatures and some kindly dwarves. And at the end, although she falls victim to a curse, she is saved by the prince that she loves. Meanwhile, in Pinocchio, it is... All about heavy-handed lessons for children, <laughs> about being good boys and girls, and not falling into, literally falling into temptation, or else terrible things will happen to you. <laughs> That's a very reductive way of putting it, but these are, they're very, two very distinct types of stories. And theoretically, the level Snow of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is also about vanity, but not really. It's about right. like purity and, and maintaining that sense of purity and how that can be infectious towards others and how someone, in this case the evil queen, will look at that and her vanity, her jealousy will cause her to want to snuff it out. Right. And with fairy tales, you know, of course there's, there's an element of uh, lessons learned or morals imparted in a lot of these stories. And that's definitely part of it in terms of comparing Snow White to the evil queen. Not only is the queen absolutely obsessed with who the fairest of them all is, Snow White really doesn't care about that. She's not really interested in being the fairest of them all. And there's there's fair criticism to be made that she's sort of, like, she doesn't really care about much, but I think that Snow White as a character is, I mean, she is so fun to be with because she is just a, a delight. She's an eternal optimist. She loves 
the natural world around her. She is in love with his handsome, beautiful, singing-voiced prince. And her first instinct is, is often towards good. It's towards helping. It's towards caring. And, and again, when you talk about Snow White, the OG Disney princess... There's plenty of conversation to be had about the kinds of lessons that she is imparting as well. And, and there's some who have criticized the character now that we're 90 years on in some of the, the ways that that story has become outdated. But I don't think that it's the kind of thing where it's just, we need to get rid of it now. I think it's, it's the kind of movie that when you watch it with a critical eye, you can appreciate the good and understand why someone may have a okay. problem with her character. Here's, I don't really have a problem with Snow White as a character. I don't yeah. have a problem with the story except... It's it's a little boring. It's kind of boring. Let me let, and and I say that as someone who can appreciate the animation, but it's also like when it is now transferring to see how the different woodland creatures are singing as they help out Snow White. See, I love that. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> that that's maybe a, a bad example then because that was also that I do agree that was pretty cool. Except that it was pretty cool at the beginning, but it stretches out. It's stretching yeah, like, all of these scenes out significantly. And what you're what you're getting at is that the essential plot of Snow White is that the queen wants to be the fairest of them all. The magic mirror says that Snow White is the fairest of them all. So the queen plans to kill Snow White. Snow White escapes, Don't goes we all to stay with to kill Snow White. Obviously, goes yeah. to stay with the seven dwarfs. The queen decides that she'll take matters into her own hands and kill her herself. So she becomes this evil witch with a poisoned apple. Goes to kill Snow White, and succeeds. Snow White doesn't die. She, she just falls asleep forever. And the queen herself dies in her attempt to escape. And eventually the prince arrives and finds Snow White, is able to kiss her, wake her, and they live to be happily ever after. That is about 10 minutes of this 80-minute movie. <laughs> the other 70 is devoted to the animation, to these different to sequences. To woodland creature singing or to the evil queen. The haunted forest. The haunted Great forest. Great sequence. To the evil queen trying to figure out how, like reading the magic book about how to choose her disguise. By the way, also stupid decision. She chose to look like the most untrustworthy hag. And yet, Snow White, after being warned by the dwarves not to welcome anybody inside, let alone creepy-looking old ladies, brings her inside and takes a bite out of that apple. (laughs) It's it's not a good look for her. For all of her many great qualities, Snow White is gullible, unfortunately. Yes, she is. What I took away from this, and I can appreciate looking back at it and saying, this is not particularly narratively exciting, and it drags. And instead, what I found is... When I did improv comedy in college, I promise this is going somewhere. There, there's sketched different. Out. Shout out to the great uh, sketched out improv at Miami University. There are different schools of improv thought, and there is uh, one particular school, UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade, and one of their core philosophies is find the fun. And the way that that goes in improv, obviously, is you're acting with your your scene partners, your friends, and if you know somebody maybe puts a bit into the scene and y'all can just follow that find that find the fun and keep keep going with that bit if one person has a crazy accent you all have crazy accents if one person's character insists on finding this thing in the room start making it harder for them to find that thing in the room you know do what you can to make it more fun for yourself and your audience and I really saw that philosophy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs the animators themselves finding the fun in this world they've created 
that particular sequence you mentioned where Snow White and her brigade of woodland creatures <laughs> have come upon the dwarves' home while the dwarves are off at work, she determines this house where little must children... Must belong to children. Must belong to children who are living on their own uh, is so messy and so yeah, dusty and so dirty... she's going to clean it all up. That she's going to clean it all up and the woodland creatures are going to help. And I... And there's Okay, there's one part where the way in which one of the deers decides to clean it is by licking every single plate. And then Snow White looks at the deer and says, no, no, and changes it. In the water. <laughs> it's like, no. You should get to wash this with soap, boys. <laughs> There's an alternate uh, cringy version of Snow White where the dwarves die of uh, like cholera and other horrible diseases oh that that the, uh, the woodland creatures transmitted to them. But... In in that scene, you're seeing all of these fun ideas for how different creatures can help clean up a house. Whether it's a squirrel twirling up its tail to clear up cobwebs, or it's birds fluttering around in flying clothes onto a deer's antlers so it can take okay. the clothes out to wash. But, yes, and, and it's impressive, and it is significant, and it set the tone for how animated movies should look like for the next, not forever, but probably for the next 80 years. years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For the next 80 years, um, what, as of right now, one of my views of, like, one of the most impressively, I don't know if we're going to talk about it, one of the most impressively animated movies ever is Beauty and the Beast. Um, I don't know if we'll talk about it, but that's, it's, there's something that they did that I think is absolutely incredible. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If your movie's the first animated film to ever get nominated for Best Picture, we're going to talk about it. So, (laughs) we'll talk about Beauty and the Beast later on this month. No, but... The, um, it set the tone for that, but it I I I mean maybe you can answer this or how you view it. How much does significance need to play a part though in best? Because significance has to be a part of it, but it is entertaining to me. But there's like a cap to it. I mean, and then after that, I'm like twiddling my fingers because it's like oh. Now they are now the raccoons are using their 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 tails to swip up spider web cobwebs. Darn right. <laughs> now the queen's gonna walk all the way down in the basement where there's still skeletons hanging up on the walls and she's gonna do some magic stuff. It takes her so long to walk down those stairs. She's taking fine, it fine, one fine. step at a <laughs> time. So I mean when you talk about significance as a concept, I think there is sometimes a natural inclination to like is it bristle? Bruss? I'm forgetting the word. To get frustrated, shall we say, with the quote-unquote canon. And there's a lot of movies in the canon that maybe shouldn't okay. be there or I'm whatever. Not, I'm not bringing that up. But Right. But, like, significance means something. And there's a difference between, like, the best movies of all time and my favorite movies of all time. Where I have movies that I dearly love and I won't be mad if a hundred film critics gather together and leave it off their list of the best films of all time. In the same way that significance, greatness, influence, those are related but different concepts. And so I think Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is one of the most significant movies ever made. Sure. Is it one of the best uh, animated movies ever made? I don't think so. I, it, to me, it's the kind of movie that it has been surpassed. It opened the door and led to decades of amazing movies that have been made in its wake. I don't think I consider it the best animated film of all time, but... In terms of, like, most significant movies ever made, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is up there. Well, here's here's why. Because just three years later, they released a movie that was better than that movie. And that movie is Pinocchio, which 
Unfortunately, despite its bigger budget, was not a box office success at the time. It would become successful as Disney would re-release their movies into theaters, but yes, Christian, you think the Pinocchio is better. I know of many people who said that Pinocchio is not only better than Snow White, it's also the single greatest movie that Disney Animation ever produced. Tough to peak with your second movie when you've been making movies for almost 90 years, but hey, could be worse. So what about Pinocchio for you, Christian? I, I think you've already alluded to it, maybe the narrative that is a the little tighter. Is, yes, the narrative is so much tighter. It also has animation that you don't just look at and wow at. It produces an emotional response in you. Now, the the premise behind Pinocchio is that uh, Geppetto is a man who makes different I don't he know he makes wooden toys, wooden toys clocks and clocks. gadgets yes yeah. he he is and he is an artisan in the records he has a, a goldfish named Cleo and a little cat named Oh he's got a little cat named Figaro he sure does yes, he does have a top cat 10 named movie cats Figaro's making a run well, for the number 1 spot <laughs> honestly i'm okay with that i agree with that i i i love figaro and he makes this little puppet the, well, not puppet. It would be like, like, is it puppet marionette? It's not a puppet. It's well, like a. It's he like makes a, a marionette doll. So a puppet, wooden puppet, controlled by strings. Yes. Um, and then uh, he wishes upon a star or prays. I don't really know because in Snow White there is prayer. In Snow White there is prayer. Snow White says her nightly prayers. Learn that, boys and girls. In Pinocchio, he does wish upon a star because he sees it out. In the distance. Yes. And, uh, and also, uh, Jiminy Cricket literally sings that song to lead us when you wish upon, <laughs> which to is, the movie. Which is, I think, still the theme, the main theme that Walt Disney, like that the Disney Corporation uses. Yeah, when you watch this movie and you hear the... That's when you wish upon a star. And so he wishes for Pinocchio to be real. The Blue Fairy visits him. Now, this blue fairy says, or turns him not into a real boy, but turns him into a living wooden boy, and says, Pinocchio, if you learn to tell between right and wrong, if you act selfless and put others before yourself, I will turn you into a real boy. And she appoints Jiminy Cricket to be his conscience and to help him figure out what right and wrong is. Would that we all had a little cricket who could act as our conscience? I would, Some of you all out there need it. I would I would fly on me. I'd kill it. I'd probably, <laughs> Christian. <laughs> no. No, I, I, I'd see it cricket and just like squish. Your cricket would be like, Christian, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great movie. And you'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be dead way before that. No, but. Um, so it starts to. It, it, Pinocchio's quite stupid. And so like. He, on is, his he way, is a boy who has been spawned into existence no, no, by okay. a fairy. He's That's alive actually, for 12 hours. Let, let and he me, meets vagabonds. Let me, let me actually backtrack this. <laughs> Pinocchio's not stupid. He's just a kid. And if you think kids are stupid. Discussion for another day. Yeah, we, can, we can revisit last we, week's conversation we if we need. But, or two weeks. That's the Babadook. But we got into that fight. You're, 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 you're good. Um, he's not stupid. The thing is, he literally gets abducted. He gets coerced, abducted, sold off into child slavery. 
Le- lesson one of Pinocchio <laughs> is don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strange foxes. <laughs> Go to school. Here's the thing, though. They're not even real people. They're foxes. What the frick is the point behind that? It, it's a fascinating little stroke of whimsy in Disney's Pinocchio that the... What is, it's Joe. Honest Joe? Is that his name? Honest Joe. Honest Joe and his... How low can you go? Weird, mute sidekick <laughs> come along, <laughs> Pinocchio. And yes, they whisk him away. And it's a weird bit of whimsy that they're the two anthropomorphic animals who would go on to, f- to feature in many Disney films over the years. But but in those other movies, animals are like the center. Right. Animals? Snow White was chit-chatting with her woodland brigade, but they weren't talking back. They were just following orders. <laughs> yes. the I mean, the only like bad creatures in Snow White are the two vultures who descend and feast upon the dead evil queen's body. Those vultures. They... That's some good animation right there. That, that their was, faces. <laughs> that was so weird to like just tag in that her dead, like her corpse is being eaten by these vultures. In much like fairy tales themselves, remember that early Disney movies were a little more dangerous than a lot of children's yes, movies are. Yes, they were. Than, and I do, I miss that. Now. I miss that. I, I mean, like you said, Pinocchio itself. There, there's some, there's some tough stuff. There's some real uh, maybe not scary moments but it scared yeah. you as a kid they, monstro the whale is pretty frightening for monstro a kid monstro the whale is gorgeously animated Indeed the blue fairy and like her ethereal nature yeah. is beautiful to look at but it's it's more so i'm i'm like sitting on my couch i'm looking at the tv and he gets taken to pleasure island where little kids are allowed to drink beer and smoke cigar and gamble, destroy a house. There's an entire scene. That is the maybe the best part about Pleasure Island. <laughs> There's this like open house that says open for destruction. These boys are walking around just smashing it up. Uh, Pinocchio meets a boy, another boy named Lampwick, yes, who's his, his like gateway to mischief. And Lampwick's like, hey, watch this. And he throws something through a stained glass window. It's <laughs> just like, can we ram the point home any harder that this is not only like and, bad and naughty, it's sacrilegious. And he's like telling Pinocchio to take deeper inhales of the cigar to the point where Pinocchio gets sick. And I'm like, honestly, relatable. <laughs> No, no, no. Yes, again, like, these messages to kids are very clear. Naturally, especially in 1940, kids were going to have opportunities to smoke that they shouldn't take. (laughs) Disney is imparting these lessons. No, but then, like, what they were doing, the reason that kids were being abducted, taken to Pleasure Island, is that they could be turned into donkeys and then sold sold off (laughs) to the salt mines is one of the labels on one of the greats the circus the circus was another one yes and i'm looking at that and the the there's like an evil man who is working this but he's being (laughs) delightfully evil (laughs) but then he's helped by 20 just pitch black figures they don't really have forms they're kind of just like um, humanoid-ish kinds of things. It's one of those bits that's probably a cut corner. Like, they were just coming up on a deadline and we're like, we have to get this movie in theaters so we can keep oh. our doors open. You know where but else it, they cut corners? But it plays well, because they. I like how creepy those guys are, but what else? The other place where they cut corners is when they're transporting the kids to Pleasure Island, and when you see them from a long view, they're not intricately designed. They look no. all like puppets with like weird black holes where mouths Yeah, be. little dots for eyes. Yeah. It's, it's so odd, but... Um, 
it's frightening. Like that, I'm still sitting there like, this is messed up. This is messed up, um, which is kind of the point of the movie, but it's like a, it, it's it's not just little kids don't do this. It's also little kids, the world out there is trying to get you. And I, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm not terrified. It's not scaring me the way the Babadook scared me, but I am thinking this is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. Yeah, and it, I, you know, I called it a morality tale, and that's it's not the only purpose of the narrative. I, I think the driving force is to tell, and this is, of course, an adaptation of a book. This is an adaptation of Carlo Collodi's book, Pinocchio, or The Adventures of Pinocchio, maybe, which is darker than this movie, from what I understand. I have not read it myself, but every time somebody brings it up, whether when Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio was making the rounds last year and people were discussing that, or now listening to some uh, chats about this Pinocchio, that book is apparently much darker even than uh, much darker than this Disney version, of course. But there, there is a morality at play here. But there's also an honest coming of age story as as Pinocchio is born into the world and learns to become honest, good, and brave. And there's a really touching father son story here, of course, because Geppetto himself is this lonely old man who's given so much to the world with his creations. You know, he's an artisan who ostensibly is making toys to sell to children or at least to give to children. And his wish is for this puppet to become real so that he can have a son of his own. And it is touching to watch their father-son dynamic in the limited uh, screen time it gets. In, the, in a similar way to how Snow White was finding the fun, there are still moments where Pinocchio allows the narrative to pause and they just let the animation take over and they follow their hearts and, and design and create and have fun. And one of those comes very early in the film after Geppetto has come home, he finishes Pinocchio. He, he puts a face on him, basically. And he's not met with the Blue Fairy. Pinocchio was still a marionette at this point. And there, Geppetto is singing a song, dancing around with Pinocchio as he plays with Figaro the cat and Cleo the fish. And Jiminy Cricket observes because he has shown up at Geppetto's workshop at this point. And it's just such a lovely and fun sequence. And you see the way that Geppetto already feels so warmly towards this puppet. And it makes sense why he's going to make a wish that it could, who knows, become real and he could have a son of his own. It is an, an honest-to-goodness, moving story mm-hmm. in the middle of this very, at times, heavy-handed, although not necessarily in a bad way, morality tale. It's tight. It's gorgeously animated. It, it, it really is. And the lesson that they want to put through, whether or not you agree with it, whether or not you agree with the way in which they're trying to portray that lesson, does come through. So, yeah, honestly, of the two of them, I, I I don't know how many movies from the year 1940 I have seen, but I think Pinocchio would have to be up there for that year for me. Are there anything, any other elements of the Golden Age of Disney, of these two movies at least, that you noticed and wanted to call out? Because I know I have a couple things on my mind, but I'm curious if you notice anything. doesn't matter which movie it's from, but if you just wanted to bring it up as part of something you noticed, something you wanted to talk about. The, well... I don't know how old Snow White is. I know that Pinocchio is being represented as, as, as like a very as like a child, as like a kid who would probably be in around elementary school. Yeah, elementary school aged boy. I know that in Bambi, Bambi's a kid. He's a kid. I know that in a lot of these, what you are seeing are very um, overt, dangerous worlds being shown or, or, or being pre- kids are being put into those scenarios. And 
Not that Disney ever, you know, shied away from taking on a label of appealing to kids. It's just that the in the Golden Age, the world was much more dangerous to children. And it, it quote-unquote, was, like, pure because innocence meant a word that I don't think innocence means now. But it was specifically kids look at what the world out there has and similar to how it, it sometimes i don't know sometimes when you go into the studio system you neuter yourself or how dangerous it is that you can present something disney has kind of neutered itself or it'll be some stupid thing about how change was inside of us all along i don't really care but it's <laughs> it's how change was inside of us all along it, it it's it's interesting to see that even the Disney movies that I have seen um, that maybe I like more than these movies don't have that level of danger or the level of danger is, is, is um, the scope is different. The scope is very different. Yeah, I think on that note, it's interesting to just think of the way that parenting has changed over the years. And obviously this changes from one, you know, cultural background to another from socioeconomic class up and down the ladder so it's not like there's some grand way of parenting that is the way that everybody from one generation did it and everybody that another generation did it but now what often comes up as a criticism of modern parents is that they are too involved with their kids lives and their kids don't learn how to be independent they don't learn how to succeed on their own they don't learn how to fend for themselves or defend themselves or even just like talk to a teacher and get an extension on their own, whatever that would be. And prior generations, the same criticism has turned around where kids were left to their own devices too often, you know? And obviously I am, I am who I am. I'm a 27 year old person who was raised in the late nineties and early two thousands. And I, I was raised the way that I was by very involved parents who I love, but in the way that like you can, what I'm getting at is that these movies are in a different world where kids were more independent and the world at times, in some respects, was less dangerous, sure, but also at times there there are just different dangers that kids that in that era were dealing with. And we see these stories that are more freely accepting of that danger and of the world that they are living in, where nowadays kids are very rarely truly endangered in Hollywood movies. And we certainly see characters endangered in Disney movies, but we don't really feel a ton of tension, not often a ton of stakes. And, and yet, in these older movies, there is a more real and imminent sense of danger. Just sort of a cultural observation that I, I, I don't know if it fully connects, but what's, that's what made sense to me. Anything else for you? I, the, I, actually, just what I want to say about the music. Um, Snow White nominated for an Oscar uh, for its music, although they won the honorary award. Pinocchio would actually go on to win it. Two. Won both score and song for When You Wish Upon a Star. Which became common for a lot of Disney movies to get nominated for and win. Yes. Indeed it did. They had to change the rules later on because of Disney Renaissance films getting too many nominations in that category. But the music here is so finely interwoven into the movies themselves. Both of these movies feature songs. I would say Snow White is a little bit more of a musical, I suppose, but there are many songs of Pinocchio as well. Not only are there musical sequences, but there also are just are times where characters are walking or re- uh, interacting with their environment to the tune of the music. 
these movies are inseparable from their scores, and it's a good thing that the music is aged really well, because it's lovely to listen to. But I also just love the care and the intention of the animation to match it up with the music. There, like, you can hear, the like, in Pinocchio, when it it's kind of a jaunty beat, like a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know that Pinocchio is skipping along in his world, and he's landing on the downbeat every time. And I, I just, I love the care that was put into the movies like that. Um, yeah, really, really great Disney music here, for sure. What's also important to note is that both these movies, alongside, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Up Until Cinderella, were distributed by RKO. Yes, Radio RKO. Keith Orpheum. They are very well known for, they are the movie studio that produced Citizen Kane. If you don't know Citizen Kane, or if you only have only heard of Citizen Kane, there's another movie that they've made that you probably heard of, the 1933 King Kong. They are also the ones who did the Fred Astaire to Rogers musicals. They're also the ones that did the screwball comedies with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. And so I think both um, A Thing from Another World and The Thing are theirs. I'm not entirely sure. But it is interesting that what was at one point considered one of the major studios in Hollywood, RKO, was known for this because Disney as a minor... It was not a major studio at the time. It was, it was known for its its shorts. Exactly. Like Di- Walt Disney himself was nominated for the most Oscars out of any other Hollywood has figure in history, and Oscar. has won more Oscars than any Hollywood figure in history. Most of them are shorts, and most of them are for shorts. He had won several Oscars by the time he won an honorary award for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But the, like, like they were known for making these shorts that would play before or in between movies in a double bill, and that's that's why Snow White is so influential, of course. But it really they stepped. Put Disney into a different realm of understanding that obviously this golden age era is ironically named at times because so many, so few of the movies were box office successes upon initial release and they wouldn't really start taking off until later on. But you understand, like, the partnership with RKO is a big deal. It's what helped uh, help the movies get established and sent out into so many theaters. So that is, and now looking at what Disney is now. A company that is taking all these movies and remaking them as live action. Oh, goodness. That Snow White remake that I'm not going to touch with the 10-foot pole <laughs> in terms of discussion. I mean, I'll like, I like... I don't care about it. I, I don't really either. I hate that people are mad about it because I think a lot of the reasons that they're mad are kind of silly, but... But whenever, whenever they put out another original animated movie, it's still of quality. Like, what was the last one that they did? Encanto? Strange World. Okay. I like Strange World. I like Strange World. The I don't people, love the, Strange World. The people hated Strange World, but Strange World, it was good. Okay, I, well, I thought... It, I, I'm with you, though. I, I liked it, didn't love it. I, I really do like Encanto. Um, not... I, 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 wait, was Zootopia theirs? Yes. Zootopia. I really like Zootopia. What would... Like, Treasure Planet from the early 2000s? What a poll, Treasure Planet. <laughs> It, it's one it's, of the less successful Disney films of that era, unfortunately. But when it's Disney original animation, there is a strength to it. Tangled, Tangled. amazing. Um, but not like that's why I wish I am hopeful for. Except that Disney has also diluted it. Like, yeah, it's diluted its product. And when you only had. Just one company that made animated movies, one every several years. Of course, every single one of them was a gem. 
Yeah, I I mean, when you look at lists like greatest animated films of all time, you're going to get a lot of classical Disney movies. And nowadays, I think, thankfully, we have an appreciation for animation around the world, of animation for different age groups, not just children or families, but also teenagers and adults as well. There's more animated films being produced. And unfortunately, for Disney, that means more competition. And so when they have movies that don't succeed, it puts them under the microscope. But we've also seen Disney go through ups and downs. Like we're saying, there's these different eras of, of Disney animation. Different, an- different eras are better known than others because of the success of the movies. The Disney Renaissance is widely considered to be like the best era. And I'm sure there are some hardcore Disney fans who will, who will have different opinions on it, I'm sure. But for the average person, I'm sure that era is widely considered to be a favorite and the little mermaid is the first movie in the disney renaissance and it came out november of 1989 which is 52 years after snow white you know these things everything in hollywood it comes and it goes it happens in cycles you go up you fall back down if you're lucky you go back up again disney has gone up and down several times at this point and i can only hope that the future of Disney is bright. As much as I hate to say it for a such a large corporation that has such a, a dominance in the industry, they don't really need my goodwill or charity necessarily. But what's fun about this month, I hope, is what's fun what is going to be fun is looking back at these classics from our childhood, getting in touch with these movies again. Cause I know for me, when I'm trying to like watch a movie that I when I when I just think to watch a movie, I almost never think, hey, I should watch a Disney movie that I watched when I was seven years old. I'm thinking of different types of movies these days. So I'm hoping that this nostalgia trip is fun, but also gets us in touch with some of the, the great DNA of Disney and, and we can think about where they can go in the future. Or at least where we can hope. And they stop making these stupid live action remakes. They're not gonna stop. They're not gonna stop because they're gonna keep making way too much money. Christian well, Who's going to them? Every everybody in their families, all of the families with kids. Guys? Because Christian, there's not a ton of movies made with children or families in mind just these rent, days. Just rent across the spider verse, rewatch. But Just people at wanna, the end, press replay. People want to go to the movies. They want to go and buy popcorn, drinks, drink Where ices. was this attitude two years ago? When we were dealing with a global pandemic? That was three years ago. But that it, <laughs> Not going to talk about that, Christian. <laughs> Don't know why you picked 2021 specifically, but... Christian, any final thoughts on Snow White or Pinocchio? Um, recommend. Absolutely recommend. They are two classics... They're well worth your time, folks, especially if you've not revisited them in many, many years like Christian and myself. So check them out on Disney+. Plus. Go find your old VHS tapes and that, that old VCR that hopefully still works and fire them up, maybe. Hopefully you can check them out again and have a nice nostalgic experience. Yo, Big Hero 6 won Best Animated Feature. Yes. Yes, it did. And it's part of the Disney revival era. But Christian, next week we're going to be talking about the Silver Age of Disney. So we're skipping past the wartime years and the package films of that era and we're going to be looking at the next great disney era films from that era include cinderella which is considered to be the first alice in wonderland peter pan lady and the tramp sleeping beauty 101 dalmatians and i believe yeah it ends in the jungle book so the sword and the stone and the jungle book so mary poppins also fits in there but it's not fully animated it's only got animated sequences 
Christian, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking next week, we talk Cinderella, we get back in touch with our princess selves, and talk about the film that kicked off a new revitalized era for Disney. I've also been wanting to look at Sleeping Beauty, another princess film of that era, but I'm open, I'm open to your suggestions if you think we should look at a different movie from that batch. Okay, let me let me look at what the um, let me look at what the Silver Age era is again. I sadly just got rid of the tab. Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians. The Sword in the Stone and the Jungle Book. Okay, not with all due respect. Um, probably not Peter Pan. I think that there are some racist undertones there that I just don't I don't have time for right now. <laughs> don't want to wade into it. <laughs> no, I, I, I really don't know. Right there's now. there's a a little moment in Pinocchio that calls upon some of the same racist tropes yes. that we'll have for Peter Pan. I'm happy to sidestep it for now as well. Um, I cannot remember Sleeping Beauty a ton except for the big dragon at the end. So it might do well. The only other one I would probably put in the radar to revisit is The Sword in the Stone. So I think you should choose between Sleeping Beauty and Sword in the Stone. Um, Jungle Oh man, Jungle Book. Actually, between uh, Sleeping Beauty and Jungle Book. I, I think it should be between those two. Yeah, I think what's hard is that a lot of these movies are well regarded. Like Sword in the Stone is kind of considered to be one of the weaker links mm-hmm. of this era, but... I've never seen it, so there you go. I'm going to watch you for this. You've never seen it yourself, so hmm. Sleeping Beauty. Well, okay. If we're scratching our princess itch with Cinderella, perhaps it is worth looking at the Jungle Book as well to get some Disney talking animals uh, in our system as well. So I'll make the pivot. I'll make the pivot from Sleeping Beauty. We'll talk Jungle Book as well. We'll talk first and last films. Of the Silver Age. No, you're forgetting the Aristocats. That's the last one. The Aristocats is considered part of the Bronze Age, which kicks not, off in 1970. Not according to Wikipedia. Christian, Wikipedia doesn't have the eras, does it? Oh, interesting. DizAvenue.com says the Bronze <laughs> Age begins with the Aristocats in, the, in 1970. Do you know why? Because no. Walt Disney himself died in 1969, which is what kicks off the new era. The, the post-Disney era. 1970. So the Aristocats is the first one that showcases his frozen head? No. Ah. But we will talk that's, that's frozen. Cinderella and the Jungle Book, and we're going to walk right past that frozen Walt Disney comment. <laughs> of course, those movies are available on Disney+. Plus. We hope that you check them out and follow along with us as we take a trip through Disney history. It's going to be a fun month, folks, and we hope you had a good time on today's episode. Of course... If you're still listening here, thanks so much for listening. Christian, what's our clock looking like right now? We're at an hour and ten, bro. We're at an hour and ten minutes, so thanks for hanging in with us okay, a little bit longer than we normally we spent get. like 18 minutes on Bike Riders Maestro. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, we had, we had a lead in. Bud Light was no longer number one beer. We had a lead in. This is true. So if you're still with us, thanks for being here. We greatly appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed today's episode. There are a few things that you can do to support the show. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Helps us reach new listeners on those platforms and just means a lot to see those five-star reviews roll right in. So if you don't mind, subscribe, rate, review. That stuff helps the show and we appreciate it. You can also follow... Or actually, send us an email. Let's say that first. Send us an email to cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com, especially as we're talking Disney 
I want to know our listeners' favorite Disney movies. I want to know your favorite Disney eras. I want to know what you think about Pinocchio. Tell me all of your thoughts, folks. I'm so curious to read them. This is such a wide uh, topic, and Disney is Disney. There's We all have some sort of relationship to Disney, and I'd love to know your thoughts and feelings, especially if you're living in Hot Take Town and you want to tell us about how the Aristocats is secretly the greatest Disney film of all time. Let me know at cinemaontappodcast at gmail.com. Christian will also know, so let us know. You can follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are both regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. You'll probably see some more Disney reviews coming in from the both of us later on this month. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Oh, man. Um, You know what? Another shout-out, because it's in theaters right now, The Holdovers, which I was able to see. Uh, Gorgeous, beautiful performances, nostalgic, very, very well-crafted. It's the newest. um, It's a movie directed by Alexander Payne. It, um, oh, man, it's off of a spec script that he found someone did. And it stars Paul Giamatti, Dominic Sessa, and Devin uh, De- 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 Joy Randall. Incredible. And it is expanding. And a movie that is going to come to Apple TV Plus soon is Fingernails, where people remove their fingernails and they can put it into a machine and you can test to see, based on your fingernails, whether you two are in love or not. I guess we better take that test, Christian. The people deserve to know. Mm. We'll take that test, give our results next week. And until next time, this has been Cinema on Tap. Thanks for listening.